worshiping with us for the first time. We're, we're glad you're here with us this morning. Uh, if you would, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Genesis. We're going to be looking at chapters 1 and 2. It's the same story as it appears in chapter 1. And as retold in chapter 2, it's the story of the first wedding between Adam and Eve. We're going to be looking at selected verses. I'll tell you what those are in just a minute, but it should be page 1 and page 2 of your Bible. This is Genesis 1 and 2. As you're turning there, um, I want to tell you a story about my car. Uh, Several years ago, I was driving down the road and just all of a sudden my car died. It it didn't sputter, it just died. Its jugular was cut. I had just enough momentum in my car to pull over and get into a parking lot. Wouldn't restart, couldn't move it, had to get a tow truck. So I had it towed to my mechanic. And, you know, I just thought, you know, since I'm in my car every day, and since it's my car, surely I know a thing or two. You know, I can put two and two together. Maybe I can take a stab at this. So I'm in my mechanic's office, and I say, here's the problem. And, and my guess is, you know, is I think it's the fuel filter. They said, all right, pastor, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll jump on that first thing. I kind of thought I knew what I was talking about. A couple days later, they called me and they said, we don't know what the problem is with your car. Now, we've had it in here for three days. We can't find the problem. We're going to have to call the manufacturer. So they called Nissan. And after they explained the situation to the manufacturer, they said, well, we think the problem is simple. There's no gas in the car. And they came back to me and said, there's no gas in your car. (laughs) The problem was my gas gauge broke. My gas gauge was somewhere between a quarter and a half a tank, and I thought, and we all assumed, I had plenty of gas in the tank, but there wasn't. I learned two things that day. Number one, I make a lousy mechanic, okay? As a consumer, as one who drives his car every day, just because I drive my car, I know it, doesn't make me a good mechanic. But here's the other thing. Manufacturers make the best mechanics. Why? They built the car. They put it together. They know it backwards and forwards. Mechanics, excuse me, manufacturers make the best mechanics. Now, this morning, we're looking at the topic of marriage. And rather than consulting a mechanic and rather than consulting consumers, wouldn't it be wise of us this morning to consult the manufacturer, the one who made it, the one who knows it backwards and forwards? After all, did we create Marriage? Is this just a social institution we just thought of? No. The Lord created this. He manufactured it. So we would would be wise to go to him. So let's do so this morning. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 27, 28, and 31. And then we're going to jump to chapter 2 and look at verses 18 through 25. Your bulletin is lying to you. It says 24. And all the cutting and pasting, we left out verse 25. My apologies. We're going to go through verse 25. So it might be more helpful if you follow along uh, in your Bibles. Genesis 1, 27. This is God's word. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made and behold... It was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It's not good that man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field 
and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there is not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray. Father, we know the stories. We know this tale. Probably better than most stories in the Scripture. But Lord, isn't this true? The truths are always ever before us. Uh, They're right in front of us. They're right underneath our noses. But in spirit, unless you give us eyes, unless you awaken us, unless you draw us to yourself, we'll miss it. And so spirit, now we've again wandered into your territory. We are underneath your word. And we would ask... That would, it would be that double-edged sword that would pierce our hard hearts, cause us to see ourselves as we truly are, but more importantly, Father, cause us to see you as you truly are, the one who has loved us with an everlasting love, the one who has been gracious and kind and merciful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. There's a story about a famous football coach of the Green Bay Packers. His name is Vince Lombardi. Okay, if you don't like football... You may not have heard that name, but when you win the Super Bowl, this guy's a pretty big deal. When you win the Super Bowl, you just don't win a trophy. You win the Lombardi Trophy, okay? This guy's pretty important in the world of football. And there's a story, there's this tradition that Coach Lombardi would do at the beginning of every spring camp, okay? So here's how this would look. Super Bowl's played. The winner is named champion. All the players go home, right? A couple months later during the summer, all the coaches call the players back in for training camp, right? And so, you know, it's been a couple months since they've seen each other. You know, they're getting their gear back on. They're catching up. There might be new players on the team. Everybody's in the locker room together. There's lots of conversations going on. And as the story goes, Coach Lombardi doesn't just kind of sashay into the locker room. The doors burst open. All the coaches walk in and surround the players. Coach Lombardi walks in, whistle around his neck, football in one hand, clipboard in the other, and begins pacing in front of the men. What he's subtly communicating is, is I'm about to talk, so you need to stop right? Conversations begin to die down. Players taking a knee, some sitting on a bench. Finally, he stops pacing and he turns and looks at the men. And this is, this is how the legend goes. Every year he would begin spring training camp this way. He looks at the men and says, this is a football. Now, why is that silly to us? Because if you're playing for the Green Bay Packers, obviously you know what a football is by now. If you don't, you're in the wrong place and you're in the wrong business. What is he getting at? What's, what's Coach Lombardi getting at? Because he's onto something. Isn't this true? Don't we as, as human beings, don't we have this proclivity, this nature to take things that are very simple and make them complex? Right? Football's very complex. Coach Lombardi was coming in saying, look, we're not going to make this complex. We're going to focus on the basics. And here's one of the basics. This is a football. 
But isn't this true? That anything that we find ourselves involved in, anything we touch, we take things that are simple and we complicate things, don't we? Remember when a cup of, when a cup of coffee used to be just a cup of coffee? Now it's, you know, vente, latte, grande. It's not simple anymore, right? It's like, no, 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 I prefer mine more coarse. That's, that's too finely ground. And, and is that Guatemalan? Because I really just don't have a palate for Argentinian. I mean, I just, I mean, am I crazy? We take things that are simple, we make them very, very complex. You remember that relationship a long time ago? Y'all were friends. You decided to take it to the next level. What happened? It got complicated, right? How long did it take you to buy a Mother's Day card this week? It's supposed to be a simple task, right? Go to Target, buy a card, leave Target. Three minutes, tops, right? How long did it take you? The more we get involved in things, isn't it our proclivity, our nature, to make things more complex than they really are? And wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be great if, if we had a coach, someone like a, a Coach Lombardi, to come along and say, as it particularly pertains to this topic of marriage, which we've made very complex, sometimes we just can't get our, our head over it and just say, look, let's get down to brass tacks. Let's get up and over this. Here are the basics. Well, the good news for us this morning in this passage is that our coach, the Lord himself, the one who manufactures marriage, does that for us in this passage. He's going to say, look, I want you to see three things this morning. Three footballs, so to speak. And if you're taking notes, here's what they are. Equality, union, and intimacy. Very simple. Equality, union, and intimacy. These are the three footballs, so to speak. And let me just add this little caveat here, because I'm, I want you to know what I'm aware of. I'm aware that not everybody in this room is married, and, and some of you are, are not planning to be married for a long time, okay? And you're thinking in your mind, if this guy's talking about marriage, I'm you know, not interested in waking me when he's done. Let me just say this as, as a caveat. If you love the Lord, it's important for you at whatever stage of life you find yourself, whatever social status, marital status you are, whatever age you are, it's important for you to understand what marriage is. Why? Because when the Lord describes his relationship to us in scripture, he uses bridal imagery. And this is for everybody to understand. So you may live your whole life and you may never be married, but here's what you need to understand. When God describes his relationship to his people, he describes it in terms of, of, of him being a groom and we his people, not individuals. Guys, you don't have to freak out about this. Guys, I'm not calling you a bride, but we collectively as a people of God, we are treated like a bride. We are given great gifts. And so regardless of, 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 of your marital status, we all need to have an understanding of what marriage is because that's how God interacts with us. He uses bridal language. Okay. That being said, the three footballs of marriage, equality, union, and intimacy. Let's start with equality. Look with me again at verse 31 of chapter 1. Hear what the Lord says. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning on the sixth day. Now, a couple years ago, um, the belt on the bottom of my washing machine broke. A lot of my things are breaking right now. I'm sorry. The belt broke, and it got lodged between some gears, and it, it shredded it. So it being kind of a new washing machine, I had to go find you know, a new belt. Problem was, nobody in Greenville had it, so I had to go up to Gaffney to get it. And as I'm sitting talking you know, with this, uh, this repairman, he tells me, you know, 
I mean, I've seen a lot of washing machines, uh, and if you've got this model, I just want you to know that you've got a really good machine. Now, at first, I kind of find that ironic. I'm like, I'm here to getting it repaired. How good can it really be? But he said, you know, there's some machines, and they, and they, they clean clothes really well, but your machine, it's kind of head and shoulders by the wrist. You should hold on to that one. So I thought, okay, I mean, this guy knows what he's talking about, right? Um, he's an expert. And in the same way, listen to what the Lord is saying about these six days of creation. Remember what's happening. At the end of every day, he sings this song, and he says, day one, at the end of day one, it's good. At the end of day two, it's good. At the end of day three, it's good. But something happens on day six. What does he say? What is he saying? He says, something different happens on this day. And the creation of Adam and Eve, created in his very image, he says, oh, this is very good. This is not just good. This is head and shoulders above the rest. This is beautiful. This is awesome. Why? Because there's nothing else in creation that's built to bear his image, that's meant to look like him, to act like him, to rule and subdue like him. There's nothing else like it, man and woman. And he says, okay, they're not just good, but they're equally good. Look with me again at verse 27. So he's, he's pronounced them good, but now he pronounces them equal. So God made man in his own image, the image of God he created him. Male and female, both, he created them. That's what God says. But notice how, how later in this passage, in chapter 2, Adam, Adam agrees with this sentiment. Look with me in chapter 2, verse 23. Listen to what Adam says. Listen to him concur with the Lord. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, what we can't see here in the English is some pretty cool things going on in the Hebrew. Follow with me here, nerd moment. In chapter 1, when God describes the difference between Adam and Eve, he calls them male and female. Okay, And in the Hebrew, in the original language, those are two separate words. They don't look alike. They sound different. They're opposite words. Okay, Adam does something different in chapter 2. When he's describing himself and Eve, he doesn't use male and female. He uses a different word. He used the Hebrew word for man and the Hebrew word for woman. You know what those two words are? They almost sound exactly alike. It's ish and isha. Almost to say, look, I'm agreeing with what the Lord is saying here. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. We're both created by God and created equally good in His sight. You know what's interesting is when this, when Genesis was written, it was written to a group of people who were coming out of exile. Egyptian captivity, remember? The Egyptians, they're coming out of Pharaoh's land and they've forgotten who they were. And it was Moses' task to remind them of their primeval history. Who are you as a people? You know what's interesting is, is that none of Israel's neighbors during that time had an account for the creation of woman. The Egyptians, all their neighbors had accounts for the creation of man. But the Lord through Moses comes along and says, we're going to turn things on its head. When God created man and woman, he created them equally in his image. And when he sings over day six, he sings this song of value. And man, it wasn't just good. It was very good. People that day, this, you know, cue record scratching, right? Who? Both male and female. Last thought. We need to camp on this for a moment. Notice, notice where this value, this equal goodness comes from. Notice that Adam is not able to provide this for himself. 
Eve is not able to provide this for herself. Adam does not provide this for Eve. Eve does not provide this for Adam. Where do they get this value from? They get it from the Lord. It's a simple point. This value is derivative. It comes from the Lord. They can't create this in their own hearts. Point being, before there's mention of Eve's ability to bear children and have a family, before there's mention of of Adam and Eve's work in the garden, before there's um, an opportunity for them to go out and and take this, this beautiful order that is in Eden and spread it throughout the whole world, what does God do from the outset, from the beginning? He sings value to Adam and Eve. Do you notice the chronology here? And are you slightly uncomfortable with it? I mean, isn't that one of the most primal questions in each of our heart? Am I valuable? What am I worth? This is what's going on underneath the skin when we see people getting together and we weren't invited. It's a question of value. For some of us, this is the reason why we stay late after work is because we're trying to increase our own value. You know what Genesis is saying in this passage to you and to me and to those of us who are in marriage and even outside of marriage? The question of value has been answered to complete satisfaction. You want to know what the manufacturer thinks about you? He's smiling over you. He's going, there is nothing in creation more precious and more awesome than man and woman, for they were created equally good to bear my image. All right. What does that mean for you and I? If it's true then, that this question of value is answered fully and completely by our coach, by our manufacturer, then what does that mean? I think one of the subtleties in our culture today is, is and sometimes it can, it can even rear its head in the church, is that you're not valuable until you're married. Or perhaps if you have been married and you no longer are for whatever reason, that somehow you've lost some of your value. You hear what Genesis is saying to you this morning? Before you were married, while you were single, before you were even just a thought in your parents' eyes, the Lord is screaming complete and utter value and preciousness over you. In other words, there's nothing you can do to add to it. Becoming married and finding that soulmate does not increase your value, nor does the absence of it. Right? Husbands and wives, I want to consider you for just a moment. We still wrestle with this too, don't we? Sometimes it's the question behind the question. Why won't he voluntarily, or why won't she voluntarily spend time with me? I must not be, what? Valuable. Why is he or she not responding to my romantic interest? Am I valuable? I don't feel like it right now. Do you hear what Genesis is saying to you this morning? That cup is already full. Do you hear it? The creator, the manufacturer is saying, of all things in this world, nothing bears my image like you. And there's nothing more precious than man and woman. And those are questions that our spouses can't answer for us. And if you find yourself asking that question of your spouse this morning, perhaps you need to redirect your attention and ask the Lord, if I'm really valuable 
and you, and you have stamped your approval over my heart. I need to believe that more than I believe anything else today. What happens when you do that? What happens when you walk onto your campus? What happens when you walk into your office? What happens when you walk into your marriage and you fully believe that God's approval and his stamp is over your heart and your value cup is full? What is the sound of a, of a blown-up balloon being let go? That Right? Pressure's off, Right? You can be yourself. You don't have to have that question answered by anybody else if it's answered by the manufacturer. The second point I want us to consider is, is the second football, is union. And what we don't see because we're you know, two millennia after the fact is, is the language here used in verse 24. It, it's sober and it's serious language. Look with me again at this passage. This is chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Around Christmas time, I forget which channel it is. It's like TBS or TNT. They recycle the Christmas story over and over, right? One after the other. It's just Christmas story, uh, end to end. And it's the story of little Ralphie and the Red Rider BB gun, Right? Uh, perhaps one of the most famous um, parts of that movie is, you know, all the kids are at school, and it's recess time, so they're all going out and playing in the snow. There's a foot of snow on the ground, and there's boys and girls playing around the flagpole, right? You know where we're going? Everybody's laughing and giggling. They're trying to see, you know, who's the bravest one there, and there's I dare you, and then I double dare you. And they're trying to get someone to stick their tongue on the flagpole, because if they do, it's going to freeze, and they're going to be stuck, right? And then what happens? Remember that little guy? He chimes in amidst all the giggling, all the chatter, all the talking, and he looks at another boy and he says, I triple dog dare you. You remember what happens in the movie? This is brilliant. The giggling stops. The talking stops. Why? Because they've just taken a dare to the nth degree, right? There is nothing bigger than a triple dog dare. This guy has to do it now, right? You remember that part? When we look at the language of this passage, this, the language here has the punch of a triple dog dare. Let me, let me show you what I mean. Verse 24. Look with me again at these two verbs that Moses uses here. Therefore, a man, this, this groom, he's supposed to leave his father and mother. Okay, so that's the first verb, to leave. It's actually to forsake in the original language. But that's, that's half the equation. Here's, here's the other step he's supposed to do. He's supposed to hold fast to his wife and become one flesh. Okay, so I grew up in Texas. We have this dance called the two-step, right? And you can't do the two-step with one foot. You have to have two feet. Okay, so here's the left foot. Leave your father and mother, forsake. And here's the right foot. Hold fast to your wife. Now, these two verbs appear all throughout the Old Testament, and not coincidentally. When they show up, they show up in very intentional places. When God is, is, is describing his relationship to Israel, and when he's talking with them, he uses covenant language. He says to Israel, look, you have these things in your heart and your life, they're idols. There are things that are competing affections, right? And here's the posture, here's the practice I want you to take towards them. I want you to forsake them. I want you to leave them. I want you to turn your back on them. Okay, not just disassociate yourself from them, forsake them. Turn your back and look the other way, but that's half the step. The other verb the Lord uses in his covenant language is this. You're supposed to turn your attention and affection away from these idols so you can place it somewhere else. 
so you can bind yourself and cling to something else. And what is that something else? It's the Lord. Cling to me. Hold fast to me. Right? That's the spiritual two-step here. Forsake your idols. Cling to me. Those same verbs are used here in this passage. And original readers would have heard this and gone, we just got triple dog dared. Like, this is powerful language here. This is not just some gentleman's agreement. This is not just something we do on the fly. This is covenantal language. This is serious. Here's what this means. Let me, let me kind of start with the jugular, and then we need to kind of dissect it a little bit. What the Lord here is saying in this passage is, the relationship between a husband and a wife is the deepest spiritual unity that exists in God's kingdom. The relationship between husband and wife is the deepest spiritual unity that exists in God's kingdom. Okay? Here's what that means. Men, there's a lot of important women in your life. You have grandmothers. You have mothers. Um, You of which are the fruit of her womb, right? That's a pretty special relationship. You have sisters, aunts, cousins who are all females. And, And perhaps, Lord willing, one day you'll have daughters. Here's what the Lord is saying here with this passage, with the punch of a triple dog dare. Of all those female relationships, now think about that, your mother... Your daughter, there is no deeper relationship that's supposed to exist than that between you and your wife. That's the most important one. In fact, it's so important you forsake all else. Women, the same is true for you. There's a lot of important men in your life. You have your grandfathers. You have your father. You have your uncles. You have your cousins. Perhaps you have brothers. And Lord willing, one day you're going to have a son. And that relationship between a mother and a son is a very sweet and it's a very special relationship. But hear what the Lord is saying with the punch of a triple dog dare. There is no relationship that has deeper spiritual unity in God's economy than that relationship between you and your husband. Yes, your son, yes, your father may be your blood, but your husband will be one flesh. And husbands, your wife will be one flesh. And that supersedes all relationships. It's pretty heavy, isn't it? Just a couple questions. Wives, do you feel that way from your husbands? Do you feel like all has been forsaken and you are front and center? If not, in kindness, you and your husband need to talk. Husbands, is your wife the most important female in your life? It's easy to be distracted by other relationships. And I'm, not, I'm just talking about affairs here. I'm talking about the relationship between a son and a mother, a relationship between a daughter. It's okay to go on a date. It's okay to go on a vacation without your children. Why? Because in God's economy, there's no deeper spiritual union that exists between a man and a woman than that which exists between a husband and a wife. That's first and foremost. It's okay to leave the kids behind. But it's really good to take them too. Does your wife believe that? Does she believe that she's the number one female in your life? Last point, the last football of marriage uh, is intimacy. Now, someone much uh, wiser and smarter than me uh, says this about this, this topic of intimacy. Intimacy is keeping secrets with each other, not from each other. Look with me at verse 25. 
And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Notice two things that are going on here. Adam and Eve are, are completely naked in front of each other. And more than just this, this, this physical phenomenon, what the author is trying to communicate here is that there is nothing to drive a wedge between Adam and Eve. Okay? It's complete transparency. It's complete vulnerability. It's everything is out on the table. There are no secrets. That's only half of it. The other half of it, which is perhaps the, the most scandalous part of this, and which kind of makes us long in our heart, is that there was no shame, right? We know what it is, and we know what it feels like to be truthful and have shame attached to it, to not be accepted, right? It's when we feel irrational and we start to tell one of our friends, and, and they're kind of rolling their eyes at us and just going, again? That's, that's being vulnerable with shame. That's being vulnerable without acceptance, right? And they just come across and say, okay, okay, here, here's, here's your problem. Here's what you need to do. Fix it. That's you being vulnerable, but with shame being attached. And, you know, and, if, and isn't this the third time that that's happened? This is starting to really sound like a problem. You may want to get that looked at. That's being honest. That's being transparent, but with shame present. Adam and Eve, there was nothing to drive a wedge between them. And there was no shame. Right? You want to kill a marriage? Keep secrets. Not big ones. It starts with little ones. Don't share your fears. Don't share your insecurities. Don't share your worries, your anxieties. You'll hear your marriage, all of your relationships start to deflate. You want to kill a marriage? Bring shame. Bring condemnation. Avoid accepting the other person. Try to fix them. Tell them to hurry up. Don't sympathize. Bring shame to the equation. That'll kill it. For those of you who um, aren't married yet, you don't have to be married to practice vulnerability. And you don't have to be married to practice, practice acceptance. Do you have a best friend? Are you in a small group? Are you in a community group? Practice being transparent. Give it a shot. Throw yourself out there. Next community group, when you're going around and kind of giving updates about, you know, where are you in life, um, make everybody do a double take and just say, I'm kind of having a hard time believing the gospel this week. Perhaps I've seen my anger take a form that, that scares me. And then if, you know, truth be told, it probably scares my spouse. You don't have to be married to practice transparency. You also don't have to be married to practice acceptance, the avoiding of shame. When someone confesses something like that, don't try to fix them. You're not the fixer. Jesus is. Can you listen? Can you sympathize? Can you find something in your life that you may share in common? Can you raise your hand and say, anger, oh man, fear, worry, anxiety, and me too. What can we do for you? Doesn't your heart long for that kind of relationship? That's the way it's supposed to be between a husband and wife. That's the way it's supposed to be uh, in relationships. Transparency without shame. I want to close with this. I suggested uh, earlier that regardless of, of your marital status and regardless of your age, 
in life. It's important for us to consider this topic and have an understanding of what marriage is because this is the way in which God communicates his relationship to his people. Remember, it's bridal language. This is how God, the groom, Jesus Christ, interacts with us, the church, whom he calls his bride. Consider this. Genesis begins with a wedding. Revelation ends with a wedding. Genesis begins with a bride being presented before her groom. Revelation ends with a bride being presented before her groom. Genesis begins with a man and a woman, a bride and a groom, standing before each other completely open, completely transparent, completely honest, naked, and no shame. Revelation doesn't end that way. Do you remember how Revelation ends? Listen to what John says. There are no naked people at the end of Revelation. But he says, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Do you notice the difference between Genesis and Revelation? Now there's clothes. There's no more nakedness. This church, this bride is closed with what the writer calls the righteous deeds of the saints. And just for the sake of brevity, here's what one commentator says about these righteous garments. He says, these, these garments, the bride's righteous deeds, these are the groom's gift of grace. Right? We know what happens in Genesis 3. And if you don't, let me just be brief here and tell you. Adam and Eve were born in a state where there was no shame, no guilt, condemnation. But what did they do? They rebelled against God. They said, we think we can, we can do things better. And they introduced this virus into the human race. We call this sin. We call it brokenness. We call it transgression against the law of God. And now there's guilt. And now there's shame. And now there's condemnation. And we would be stuck there if it weren't for one person the writers of the New Testament called this the bridegroom who is Jesus Christ. And here's what he does for the church. He says, I'm going to come and live a perfect life. I'm going to be spotless. I'm going to be clean. My clothes, so to speak, will be the brightest linen that you'll ever see. However, yours, yours are tainted. They're dirty. You have judgment and wrath and guilt all over you, but I'll make you a deal. If you rest in me, I'll trade shirts with you. I will take your condemned, your guilty your tarnished clothing, and you can have my bright, white, fine linen so that when you stand before the God and you're completely honest, there's what? There's no more shame and no more guilt. Why? Because you've been clothed by the groom. This is what we mean, and we try not to speak in jargon, but this is what we mean when we say we rest in Jesus Christ. We can't provide those clothes for ourselves. Someone else has to do it. And so when we pray a pastoral prayer, we say the reason why we can come in here is because in your eyes we are spotless. We are resting in Jesus Christ. Not in our own obedience, not in anything we've done, but what he's done. It sounds a little too good to be true, doesn't it? We don't stand naked. We stand clothed in the righteous robes of Christ. This is what it means to rest in him. This is what it means to trust in him. This is what it means to express faith and lean on Christ. I pray you do, and perhaps for some of you, Maybe for the first time. <laughs> A triple dog dare you. Let's pray.
Christ, we pause to, to thank you for your efforts and your energy that you have expended on behalf of your bride, this church. And Father, thank you that we can stand before you and that we can sense and feel your smile and your approval because of what he did on our behalf. And Father, help us to find rest in that and rest in no other thing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.